serves as the bedrock of our foundation uh, with God. Uh, we're going to talk about something that it should be a great source of strength and a source of great comfort for God's people. Something that helps us to grow closer to God and helps us to, to grow to be more like Him. Today what we're going to talk about is the covenant that God has with His people. The, the covenant that God has with His people. And one, one hurdle to deal with when we're talking about God's covenant with his people is that covenants, covenants are not really a thing within our culture. Covenants are, that's not something that you hear talked about from day to day in, in the you know, 21st century United States of America. It's something that's a little bit foreign to us. Jewish culture in the Old Testament, Jewish culture during the day of Christ, they, they certainly understood covenants. Covenants were, were an integral part of, of the Jewish life. And I'm sure that there are cultures in some parts of the world today where the idea of a covenant is much more familiar than perhaps it is to us. I was trying to think of, you know, what if we have any, like how, 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 do, how do we use the word covenant? here in this country. And the only way that I can really think about it outside, outside of a religious standpoint is like the idea of neighborhood covenants, the homeowners association or something like that. And uh, that, is, that is not what the covenant in the Bible is about. That's not, it's not the same type thing at all when we're talking about a covenant within scripture. So it's really the, the closest thing, I guess you could say, that, that we have in this country to a covenant is a contract, the idea of a contract. And that's the word that's more familiar to most of us, most likely, the idea of a contract. But as we're going to see here in a few minutes, there are some very important distinctions between contracts and covenants. The two things are not synonymous. They, they can't necessarily be used interchangeably. And, and when we think of them as synonymous, then that can, that can limit <coughs> our relationship with God, that can limit our understanding of our relationship with God and, and how we live as a result of that. And that is because the God of the Bible is a God of covenants. Just a few examples of covenants that are found within Scripture. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but perhaps some of the more famous ones, some of the ones that we might be more familiar with. First one that I reference is, is God's covenant with Noah. If you want to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, God enters into a covenant with Noah. 
This is after, after God has cleansed the world of its wickedness with, with the global flood, and he has brought Noah and his family safely through those waters, and, and they're now, you know, the, there's now dry ground again. They've left the ark. God enters into a covenant with Noah. Look at in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the ark, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to, to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is this the word covenant that was repeated multiple, multiple times through those verses. God was establishing his covenant with Noah, and he put his bow in the cloud, the rainbow as we call it, the, the, the images that... God is taking his bow, like a bow and arrow, that, that he, had just, he had just afflicted the earth. He had just afflicted the earth with, with this global flood. But he is taking that bow, that instrument of destruction, and he is hanging it up as a sign of the covenant that man can look on that bow and can know that God is never again going to do what he did with the flood because he is going to remember his covenant with Noah. Remember that idea of the sign of the covenant. It's very important. Another example of, of a covenant within Scripture is that between uh, God and the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He established his covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was later reaffirmed with Abraham's son Isaac and with Isaac's son Jacob. And, and that covenant eventually would go to, to all of, of the descendants of Abraham who come to be known as the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The Jews received that covenant uh, that, that God originally made with Abraham. And then finally, there's us. Today, under the, the un, un, since Christ's birth, we live under what we call the new covenant. It's not the same covenant that God had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and Israel, although there are some very, very, the two covenants are very closely connected, but they're not the same. We today live under a covenant. We, we who have been baptized into Christ's blood, are in a covenant relationship with God. So we see God is a covenantal God and his people are a covenantal people. That includes us today. So it is very important for us to understand what God's covenant is, what it means for us. So what is it? Well, let's, let's define the covenant. And, and part of how we're going to define it, part of how we're going to define it since we since it's not an everyday idea for us, we're going to we're going to contrast it with the idea of a contract because that's something we understand a little bit better. <clears throat> so, the thing about a contract, 
a contract is, is, is generally drawn up when you know, there are two separate parties and each party has something that the other party wants. You know, I, I possess this thing, X, and you possess this thing, we'll call it Y. I want Y, you want X. So we'll draw up the contract to facilitate exchanging those things. Now that, that's, generally speaking, that's what a contract is in our culture. I have something that you want to possess, you have something that I want to possess, so the contract is going to facilitate that, that exchange of goods. But why, 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 would, why in that situation is there a need for a contract in the first place? Why does there, have, why, why does there oftentimes have to be a contract to facilitate that exchange of goods? Well, because you know, we don't trust each other. And a lot of times that's, for, a lot of times, hopefully not within God's people, but within the world that's for good reason. But so, because what happens if there's no contract, we just shake on it, and you give me X, you give me the thing that I want, then I don't give you Y. I don't give you what you want. I, I don't hold up my end of the deal. Well, that, that's, that's what, a big reason why contracts are a thing. A contract, in, in a lot of ways, is a safeguard. It's a fail-safe in case someone does not hold up their end of the deal. There are actions within the contract that each party is supposed to participate in, and if one party doesn't participate in the actions they're supposed to, then there are consequences for that. And, and those consequences are, are meant to protect the interest of the party who would be wronged. That's, in, in a lot of ways, that, that is what a contract is for, that is what a contract does. It facilitates the exchange of goods with the understanding that if someone does not do what they're supposed to do, the contract will protect the other person. It, the, the, the contract is supposed to, it is focused on making whole again the person who was potentially wronged. <clears throat> covenants are not like that. Covenants, they're, they're, now there are actions and there are consequences within a covenant. Those are, we can, we can go to Exodus, we go to Deuteronomy and see the actions and the consequences that are laid out with the covenant that God enters into with his people. But the, the covenant, though, is not about the exchange of goods. Like we said, there, there might be some sort of exchange as a part of the covenant. Those actions might, might, might include some sort of exchange, but that exchange is not the goal of the covenant like the exchange is the goal of the contract. There's something higher going on with the covenant than there is with the contract. That's because the goal of the covenant is not the exchange of goods, but the goal of the covenant is the growth of the relationship between the two parties. The goal of the covenant is the growth of the relationship between the two parties who are entering into the covenant. And like we said, there will likely be the actions and responsibilities that both parties have toward each other within that covenant. But those actions and the responsibilities are not the goal of the covenant. Those actions and those responsibilities support the goal, which is the growth of the relationship, the maintenance and the growth of the relationship. I had enough of me talking. Turn to Psalm 50. Turn, turn to the 50th Psalm. <clears throat> psalm 50, and, and we're going to start looking in verse 7. This is a psalm, a psalm of Asaph. <clears throat> Psalm 50, verse 
Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. I think, I think this is a great example of, of what the goal of a covenant is. Psalm 50 and verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. This, uh, this is God speaking here. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do, not reprove, I, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me, excuse me, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. <clears throat> so, so God says here, you know, you're offering, you're, you're going to offer me these sacrifices, these bulls, these goats, but are not the cattle on a thousand hills mine? Don't those things already belong to me? So if a covenant if a covenant is, is just about the exchange of goods, then what is God getting from this agreement? He already has all of these things that the Israelites might give to him. He, those are already his. But these sacrifices were a, were a part of the covenant. Right? They, they, were, they were something that the Israelites were supposed to participate in because they were in a covenant with God. They were required under the old law. So did God want his people to offer these sacrifices? Yes, he did. Even though he didn't need them, he wanted his people to offer these sacrifices. But was the goal of the old covenant for God to receive sacrifices? Was that the end goal of the covenant? For God's people to offer him sacrifices continually, thousands upon thousands of of sacrifices over the years. Was that the goal? Was that what was wanted from the covenant? I, I, I would argue no, especially from, from, from this passage. Because God didn't need those things. God, God that, that, that would make no sense for that to be the end goal of the covenant because Israel's not giving God something that he doesn't have already. So there's something, there's something bigger going on here with these sacrifices under the old covenant. So what role did they play? Why sacrifice if, God, if these things already belong to God? <clears throat> well, while, while there were different types of sacrifices under the Old, under the old Testament, you think about the, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, offerings of thanksgiving, the offerings of the first fruit, things like that. While there were different types of sacrifices, I would argue that at, at the root of it, they all work toward the same thing. And, and, and what that thing is, they work toward facilitating the relationship between God and his people. Because so, think about it. Why were guilt offerings a thing? If I, if, I, if I was an Israelite living under the Old Covenant, why would I offer a guilt offering to God? Because I sinned, right? I'm guilty because I've sinned. And, and when I sin... Sins, that sin separated me from God. It, it broke the relationship that I had with God. My sin did that. It severed the relationship. And, and we're told that, that where there is sin, there is blood required to forgive, those, to, to forgive that sin. And so enter the, the, the sin offering. Enter that sacrifice. That sacrifice provides the blood 
that is necessary for my sin to be forgiven. That sacrifice provides the blood that is necessary for my relationship with God to be restored to where it was before I sinned. That's what that sin offering does. That is, that is why that sin offering was a thing in the first place. It, it was God established the sin offering so that his people, when they sinned, because he knew that they would, when they sinned, they could repair that relationship with God. Well, what, what about some of the other offerings? Think about the offering of, of the first fruits. The first fruits that they would offer of their labor when they're, they're bringing in their first harvest of the year. And they were supposed to offer that, the, those first fruits of their harvest to God. <clears throat> so what, how, how does that impact the relationship between God and his people? It's not a sin offering. It's not the same thing as a sin offering. There has, there's been no sin that's occurred that has to be repented of. So the, the offering of the first fruits is not to forgive sins. It's not to repair the relationship. <clears throat> Instead, I would argue that, that these offerings, like the offerings of the first fruit, they were to help the Israelites learn to trust in God. They were to help that relationship grow and to deepen. When, when, when the Israelite took the first fruits of his offering, the very first things that he harvests from his field after tending it and caring for it for months, he takes that and he gives it to God. He doesn't enjoy it himself. He doesn't eat it with his family. He doesn't store it up for next year. He gives that to God because he, because he is learning that God was the one who provided that for him in the first place. God is the one who has sustained him, who has given him a crop, and that, that even though he was going to give God the first fruits of that labor, he understands, he is demonstrating that he understands that God is going to, God is going to provide more for him and his family. God is going to provide more for them to eat and to live and to prosper. So by, by giving God the first fruits, he's not repairing a broken relationship. Instead, he is, he is deepening his relationship with God. He's demonstrating that he, that, that not only does he recognize that God did this thing for him this past year, God gave me this, this fruit, this grain, whatever, but he's demonstrating that I believe that God is going to provide for me in the future, so much so that I'm going to give him something that I, that I could eat, but I'm going to give it to God. And it is demonstrating the growth and the maturation of the relationship. So as, as much as sacrifices could be considered an exchange of goods under the old law, the goal of that exchange was not the exchange itself. The goal was the relational growth that would come from it. The goal of the sacrifices was to either repair the relationship between God and his people or, or to help the, that relationship deepen and grow and mature. <clears throat> So God, God, he didn't want sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices. He didn't want the sacrifices because he needed the, the animals, cattle on a thousand hills or mine. But what did he want, according to Psalm 50? What, what, what did God want from his people, according to Psalm 50? Well, look at verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. What God wanted from his people was for them to honor him. He wanted them to acknowledge him as their God. He wanted them to, to trust in him, to rely on him, to call upon him in their trouble. He wanted them to recognize that he and only he was big enough to deliver them. 
in, in, in short, God wanted his people to desire and to recognize their need for a relationship with him. That is what God wanted from his people. Everything else under the old covenant was to facilitate that growth. <clears throat> I think one more important distinction between a contract and a covenant involves what happens when the consequences of the contract or of the covenant are enacted. What happens when, the, when, when in a contract someone doesn't do what they're supposed to and a, and a consequence happens? You know, what happens in a covenant when someone doesn't do what they're supposed to and a consequence occurs? Well, as we talked about earlier, the consequences of the contract are geared toward restitution, making, making the party that was wronged whole again, making sure that everyone comes out pretty much even. You know, you think about a cell phone contract that you might have with AT&T. You know, you have a three-year contract, but you go in after two years, and you're like, I want out of this contract because I'm going to Verizon because I have a better deal. Well, the AT&T person is going to look at your contract and say, all right, that's fine. It's $150 for early termination. You can't just get out of the contract. There's a consequence to leaving the contract early. That's the early termination fee, and that is so that AT&T gets... What, what, what was agreed upon in the first place. It's toward making them whole so you can go do it and whatever else. That, that's, that, is what, that is the goal of the consequence, or that is the, the result of the consequence of the contract is everyone comes out more or less even. Everyone gets more or less what was agreed to in the first place. However, when it comes to a broken covenant, the consequence of a broken covenant is that neither party will ever be whole again. That, that, is the, that is the result when the consequence of a broken covenant is enacted. If, a, if the goal of the covenant is the relationship, then the, the dissolution of the covenant necessitates the end of the relationship. The thing that both parties have been working toward can no longer exist. Think about the consequences in the Old Testament if the Israelites broke their covenant with God would result in, in death and destruction, the ultimate annihilation of the nation of Israel. That relationship could be no more because the Israelites broke, the, they, they broke their end of the covenant with God. Think about, you know, marriage is a covenant. So think about the consequence of unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. It can result in the ending of the marriage, the complete destruction of that relationship that both parties have been working for. The consequence of dissolving a covenant is the end of the relationship, and neither party will be whole again. One final thing to note as we're defining covenants is that a covenant always has a sign. We already mentioned the, the rainbow in Genesis 9. God's, it, it was the sign of God's covenant with Noah. And the sign of the covenant is very important. It's something, it, it's something public so that anyone and everyone can know that these two parties are committed to their covenantal relationship with each other. What was the sign of the, of the covenant in the Old Testament? It was circumcision, right? Circumcision was the sign of the old of the old covenant. It was something that was done publicly when the male child was eight days old. It was an event that people could point back to and say, yes, I know that you're a child of God because I was there at your circumcision. The priest was there. The parents were there. There, there is no doubt that that child is in a covenant relationship with God because there was a, there was a sign that people witnessed. 
where, where they, that, that signified him entering into that relationship with God. There, there is always a sign of the covenant, and it's always something very public and recognizable so that the person who entered into the covenant, as well as the witnesses, can point to it and can know that they are in a covenant relationship with God. So what, what does it mean to be in a covenant with God? What does that look like? Well, let, let's look at in Exodus. Let's look, uh, we'll begin in Exodus chapter 20. We're going we're gonna to hop through several chapters here from Exodus 20 to Exodus, Exodus 32 as we look at what it means to be in a covenant with God. In Exodus chapter 20, God is speaking to Moses at Sinai. He, he has brought the people of Israel out of slavery and death in Egypt. And God... And Exodus 20 is, is beginning to give, excuse me, beginning to give his law to Moses. We have what we're referred to as the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So those are the first, first two of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, no idols. First two commandments. Exodus chapter 21 up through through chapter 23, God is continuing to give various laws to Moses there on Sinai. And then in, in Exodus chapter 24, <clears throat> Moses is going to take these laws. He's going to go before the people. And in verse 3 then Moses, of Exodus 24, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord that he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he, they offered these sacrifices. And then verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and said, or, and, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with with all these words. So Moses receives in, in Exodus 20 through 23 the, the laws from God, the, the, in the way the responsibilities that the people would have under that covenant. He takes them to the people, and the people say, All that the Lord has done, we will do. And they enter into a covenant with God in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 25 through 31, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God gives to him uh, all the different regulations and instructions for the tabernacle worship. It gives them the, the dimensions for the tabernacle, the, what the priests are supposed to wear when they're offering worship in the tabernacle. That's all Exodus 25 through 31. It takes 40 days, all the while the people are down at the base of the mountain. They're getting antsy. And, and we look at Exodus chapter 32, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about there and said to him, Come! Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from this land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Forty day, just 40 days earlier, the people agreed to the covenant and said, All that the Lord we will do and we will be obedient. The second commandment that they agreed to was no graven images, no idols. And 40 days later, they are breaking that covenant with God. 40 days later, they're breaking the covenant with God. And then in verse 7, the Lord, then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. So Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. Just after 40 days, they were unfaithful to the covenant. So God has the right, under the covenant, He has the right to destroy them for their unfaithfulness. To completely and utterly annihilate this company for their unfaithfulness to His covenant. He has that right. That, that, is a, that is a consequence of breaking the covenant. He can execute that consequence if he wants to. And he tells Moses, I'm going to, I'll make a new nation out of you. So if, if you're thinking, well, what about God's covenant with Abraham? How would that be fulfilled? It could still be fulfilled through Moses. God was going to be faithful to his covenant to Abraham because Abraham was faithful. He was just going to bring that nation through Moses after he completely wiped out the people here at Sinai. God was going to be faithful to that covenant, but he was also going to execute his covenantal right of judgment on Israel here at Sinai. But Moses knows God's nature. He recognizes that God is a covenantal God who wants that relationship with his people. And he calls on God to remember that covenant. Verse 11, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Moses knew that God was a covenantal God. Moses knew that God was a God who wants to have a relationship with his people. And, and God wanted the relationship with his, with his people here more than he wanted to exercise his covenantal right of vengeance. He had that right. He, he, he could have exercised that right. But even more than exercising that right, he wanted to have that relationship with Israel. And so... He, he relents from the destruction that he was going to bring. If you read the rest of the chapter, there, there is still judgment. Thousands of, the, of Israelites will die because of their unfaithfulness to, to the covenant. God, God's desire for the covenant, his desire for the relationship, does not lead him to overlook sin, to, to just sweep things under the rug and pretend like they didn't happen. There, there is judgment here, but he, despite 
how despite the thousands of people who were killed for, for, for forsaking the covenant, this judgment is still merciful because it is not what it could have been under the covenant. And we're going to see this, we're going to see this same story play out again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. You read the book of Judges, you read throughout the Kings, God's people, Israel, they're going to continually break his covenant. They're going to continually disobey all the things that they said they were going to obey. And again and again and again, God is going to, to be merciful to them because he wants their obedience. He wants that relationship with his people. And so this God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is not a wrathful God as, as, as I have believed in the past and as, as, as many people believe. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Covenant is not a wrathful God. He is a long-suffering God. He is a God who desires a relationship with His people so much that He is willing to forgive and to forgive and to forgive again to try and save that relationship. And there, there's a word that's used throughout the Bible to describe this kind of covenantal, covenantal attribute of God. That, that word is hesed. H-E-S-S-E-D. Hesed. And, and hesed is, is a, a Hebrew word that is not easily translated to English. We don't have a one-to-one -one word for hesed. <clears throat> and, and so they, they translate it different ways in, in, in our Bibles. You might, see the, you might see it translated as, as loving kindness. We recognize that word from Scripture. Loving kindness is one way that it's translated. Steadfast love is another way that hesed is translated. Sometimes it's translated as mercy or as faithfulness. The idea that, that, that this word is, is uh, getting across, uh, the, the way the covenantal attribute of God that this word is describing is his covenant loyalty. His covenant loyalty or his covenant faithfulness. That, that is, is one of the best ways to translate this word. It is, it is the covenant faithfulness of God. It is his hesed. And this, this, this hesed, this covenant faithful, faithfulness, is one of his core attributes. His desire to have that covenantal relationship with his people. His desire to be their God and for him to be and for them, them to be his people. This hesed is the reason that God is so long-suffering in the Old Testament. This hesed is the reason that he forgives his people and that he rescues them from the destruction that they brought upon themselves and the destruction that, that they bring on themselves and others with their own bad, sinful, unwise decisions. God's hesed leads him to deliver them from those things because he desires a relationship with his people. The God of the Old Testament is not a wrathful God. Instead, he is a merciful God, abounding in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness for his people. So what, what, what does all of this mean for me? What, what does all of this mean for me, for you sitting here right now? We're not living under the Old Testament. We're not living under the Old Covenant. But, most, but those of us who have been baptized into Christ's blood, we have entered into a covenant with God. We have entered into a covenant relationship with God. And the God that we have entered into a covenant with is the same God of the Old Testament who entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and with their descendants. Everything that we've been talking about, the, the, the way that God desires the covenant for his, with his people, that applies to us today. And in fact, we are, in a way, 
children of Abraham through these covenants. In some ways, even more so than, than the Jews of, of the Old Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 4, if you will, please. Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> we, we are children of Abraham today. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his way is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised or, or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now then, how then was it credited? While he, was circumcised, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That, that is a long, very polished argument. Lots of commas and semicolons and, and phrases joined together. What Paul is saying here in, in Romans chapter 4 is that Abraham, the one to whom the Jews look to as the father of their covenant, the father of circumcision, he says Abraham was justified before circumcision was even a thing. Circumcision was the covenant... covenant Circumcision was instituted in Genesis chapter 17. That, that, is when, that is when God comes to Abraham and says, you and all of your household and all of your descendants will be, will be circumcised, and that will be the sign of, your, of my covenant with you. Well, two chapters previously, and at least 13 years previously, in, in Genesis chapter 15, we're told that Abraham was, was justified by his faith in God. That he was justified by his faith in God, before circumcision was even a thing. And so Paul is saying that, that circumcision as a sign of the covenant, that was done away with. That was done away with under the old covenant. Now with Christ, those who are uncircumcised can still be children of Abraham. Because if those who, who demonstrate faith and belief in Christ can still be children of Abraham because Abraham, before circumcision, demonstrated faith and belief in God. That's us today. That's us today. If we have faith like Abraham did, if we believe that God is faithful and will do what he said he would do, we too can enter into a covenant with him just like Abraham did. And though the sign of circumcision was done away with after Christ, we today have a new sign of the covenant. And, and that sign of the new covenant today is baptism. Baptism is our sign. It is how we demonstrate our faith and belief that God will save us. Look, look with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, right there towards the end of the chapter. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that baptism now saves you, 
not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but in an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. There, there is always a sign of the covenant. Genesis 9, the sign is the rainbow that God put in the cloud. The, the old covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Remember, these are things that, that could be pointed to. There are things that could be witnessed that someone could point to a specific point in, point in time in a specific location and say, there, that is when I was saved. That is when I entered into a covenant with God and when God saved me. Our sign to, of the covenant today is baptism. That when I am baptized, I can know that my God saved me. I can know that for certain. Because God is a God of covenant faithfulness. And he said that if, that if you enter into a covenant with me through baptism, if you are washed by the blood of my son, I will save you. And I am faithful to my word because I am a God of covenant loyalty. A God of covenant faithfulness. So I can know. I, I, can, I can look back on the day when I, when I was baptized in my grandparents' swimming pool. And I can know that from that point forward, I have been in a relationship with God. Because I did what he said to do to enter into a covenant with him. And, and, and entering into that covenant with him is, is, doesn't mean that I have done anything worthy of, of that relationship. Paul makes that point in, in Romans 4. If you can be justified by works, then you have something to boast about. I don't have anything to boast about. All, 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 all that I did was I submitted to God. I let, my, I, I let myself be lowered into the waters of baptism to enter into a covenant with God. And when, and when you are in a covenant with God, you have claims on God. You have claims on God. You can boldly go before Him and you can call on Him to do the things that He has said He will do under the covenant. And that's not disrespectful. That's not irreverent. Because God said He was going to do it. And if God says he's going to do it, you can trust with full assurance that he's going to do it so you can go before him and call on him to do the things he said he would do. Remember Psalm 50. He wants us to do this. He wants us to come before him. He wants us to call on him in our trouble. In, in, in Psalm 13, in the 13th Psalm, Psalm 13, six quick verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome it. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. I have trusted in your covenant faithfulness. I have trusted in your hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist here, David, says, comes before God and he's crying out to God, How long, O Lord, before you rescue me? How long before you do what you said you would do for me? But he can, he can do this because he is in a covenant with God. Because he trusts in God's loving kindness because the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. 
those who are in a covenant with God, not just David, not just those under the Old Testament, but us today, we can go before God and we can call on Him like this. We can cast our cares before Him and he, because He wants us to, because He cares for us. You think of, of the saints under the altar in Revelation who are crying out, how long before you render judgment on those who afflicted us? How long, O oh Lord, will those people get away with it? How long before you render judgment? The judgment that you said you would render. They're calling on God's covenant faithfulness. They're calling on, on His loyalty, His faithfulness to His people. Because they know that He's going to be faithful. So we can do that today. We can cry out to God. We can go before Him with our concerns, with our cares, with our emotions, with our distresses. We can cast all of these things before Him. And when we do this, we demonstrate our faith that He is our God and that we are His people. We recognize that He and only He is big enough to do anything about these things. And we see our frailty compared to Him. But we also see His great love and His faith in us. I want to close with, with a passage from 2 Corinthians. I appreciate your attention this morning. Uh, I, I, I really do. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This idea of, of the covenant is, is just something that is... We have to understand this. We have to understand the relationship that God wants with us and the relationship that we can have with God. Now, there are, are few things, I believe, that will change your walk with God for the better more than, un or more than understanding this, this relationship or this idea of our covenant with Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God wants this relationship with us. He wants to be a father to us. He wants us to be his sons and his daughters. He wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. That refrain is echoed all across the Old Testament, and Paul echoes it here again. God wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. Why would we trust in anyone else? Why would we have fellowship with anyone else? Don't make a golden calf to worship. Don't trust in Egypt for deliverance. Don't trust in Assyria for help. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Trust in God. Recognize that God is your God and that you are his child. And know that you are in a covenant relationship with the only being in existence who is 100% faithful to his word. You are in a covenant with the one who embodies the idea of hesed, of covenant faithfulness. And you can take great comfort in that. You can be strengthened by that. You can live your life with the understanding that you are in a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, with the God of Isaac, and with the God of Jacob. And at the end of the day, the, the only way to be saved from this world is to be in a covenant relationship with the God of this world. And if I'm in that covenant, I can know for a fact, right now, right now today, that God is going to save me in the end. Because he said that he would, and he is a faithful God. So, again, how do I know that I've entered into that covenant with God? How can I have that full assurance of the faith? Baptism. We, we, we've talked about it already. We've already discussed this. 
Baptism is our sign of the covenant. That, that is the sign that I can think back to, and I can know that God is going to save me. Just like a Jew back, back in, in the day of circumcision could, could say that day, the eighth day of my existence, that is when I entered into a covenant with God. So too can we point to the day of our baptism and know that that is when we entered into a covenant with our God. There's nothing magical about going under some water in baptism, just like there was nothing magical about circumcision. It is as simple as the fact that God said that it is the sign of his covenant, that baptism is the sign of his new covenant with us today. It symbolizes him washing us in the blood of his son, his perfect son who died for us, leaving the old man of sin behind and raising up a new man, one who has a covenant, covenantal relationship with the God who saved him. So if you need that relationship today, if you need to enter into those waters of baptism, if you need to, if you recognize that you need to be able to point to something, say, I know that God saved me, then we would love nothing more than to help you with that today, than to lower you into the waters of baptism so that you can join us in the covenantal relationship with our God. If there's anything that we can do for you today, if there's anything that the church can help you with, we would love to do so. We ask that you not leave here this morning without letting us know about that. You can come forward now as we stand and sing or, or, or later after the service. Please let us know today as we stand and sing.